Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash datastories. That's Q-L-I-K dot D-E slash datastories. Hey everyone, Data Stories 51. I'm Moritz and there's Enrico. Hey Moritz, how's How it you? going? Good, a bit of a cold, but that's usual, I guess. Yeah. That's the right time of the year. Sipping tea, ginger yeah. tea. Shame on you. Normally it's, we, it's wine. Yeah, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just gathering my, my powers here and drinking some ginger tea. Yeah. How are things for you? Still busy probably with yeah. the semester? Yeah, busy with the semester, but it's getting better. I'm really excited about my class, I think. We assigned a lot of interesting projects. Mm. So now I'm curious to see what they are able to do. So let's see. Last year it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And this year, hopefully, it's going to be even more fun. Let's see what happens. So you're beyond the introductions and now you get into the. Yeah, now I'm getting to the core part of it. And actually, I think next lecture is going to be on uh, visual encoding, which is kind Mm -hmm. of like the the soul, (laughs) heart and soul of visualization. And I still, so this year for the first time, I would like to create some smart exercises because I think especially the encoding part is something that where where students need to play with things a lot before they understand exactly right. what's what what it is and how powerful it is. So if you have any suggestions, um, I'm happy. Yeah, I would totally do the thirty-seven seventy-five. Exercise oh yeah, from yeah, Santiago. absolutely. I, yeah. I do it every time, and it's always a huge success and very yeah. eye-opening. And it's really good. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I but, vaguely remember. Yeah. I think Kim Reese has one where she. Um, she gives buttons <laughs> to the spare buttons to the class, yeah. and That's then nice. they have to arrange things with buttons. That's a really good yeah. one as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and good idea to do something practical because you can talk about. Yeah, that you cannot. Shapes. You cannot really learn encoding by by thinking about. It, I guess I think you have right. to try and try again. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Two quick updates from me. I just came back from Future Everything. So as you can see, I'm traveling all the time now. It's this time of the year. Nice. Future Everything, good conference on digital culture. And they had a track on haunted machines, investigating <laughs> the relation of magic and technology. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like a joke, but it's really good. <laughs> it turns yeah. out it's a really interesting perspective to take. Mm-hmm. And it allows you to talk about what's going on in tech culture today in a bit of a metaphorical world mm-hmm. and that allows you to sort of think different thoughts, I think. And um, that, that was really fascinating. And they had, had a whole sub-conference on this wider theme, like six, seven different talks. Um, they will be online. I will link to them. I, I think they were quite enlightening and, and also fun. Can you give us an example of what happens there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just transferring this whole world, let's say, you know, what happens in the startups and in Silicon Valley and at Apple, you know, and transfer that into the world of mages and wizards and witches and, you know, and suddenly a lot of things, you can talk about things in a different way. And, uh, and 
And I mean, technology is still a very opaque black box magic type thing to many people. You know, and the people <laughs> yeah. who exercise it have great powers, right? And nobody really knows how how this works, you know, except the people doing it. And there's also charlatans and mystics and you know people who just use the same symbols but actually don't really know what's going on. And there's white hats and black hats. You know, if you think it through, it all makes sense suddenly. Yeah. So you know, you just reminded me of a story many many yeah. years back when I was still in Rome, the the shop where I used to go to buy computers and devices. There was a lady who actually came and she was super scared about getting a vir virus from from her computer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So that that's really interesting. I found it really yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. And in a way, it's exactly what we want to avoid also, that people think it's mag magic. You know, we want to be very transparent and simple, but the way it plays out is much different. So it's uh, it's a very interesting theme. And I think it becomes a whole... A whole longer discourse, I think, around it. So if you follow haunted machines on Twitter or search for the word hauntology, which I find to be good <laughs> as well, <laughs> that's a good starting point. And we will link from that uh, to that from the show notes, of course. Sure. Um, second, uh, we finally launched on the web our Broadway installation. So the project we did with oh, that's a cool Manovich, one. Yeah. Bauer, Daniel Godemeyer. We put that on the web so you can actually you know, browse the same data as we have in the interactive installation at New York Public Library. And um, yeah, I think it turned out really well. Dominicos did a fantastic job of like making that work in normal browsers. It's quite amazing. And you should give it a shot. We'll, we'll, we'll link to it from the blog post. So can we go visiting on at the public library? Yeah, that's anyways. So that's the whole year. It's in the ground floor. No entrance fee. If you go to New York Public Library, you can play with the application and also see the rest of the um, the exhibition, which is really great. It's 175 years of photography and really great pieces from the whole time span. Um, or you go to the UL provided in the, in the blog post and then you can play with the interactive application yourself and also see the documentation and some of the thinking behind it and where the data came from, things like this. Great. Yeah, and that leads me directly, segueing <laughs> nicely to our guest today <laughs> because he's also really into cities, among many other things, but also cities. And um, that's Dietmar Offenhuber, and he's sitting right next to Enrico now, but I'm <laughs> yeah. sitting in Germany, so it's totally a strange situation. We have an interesting um, setting today. Yeah, very confusing. But hi, Dietmar. Yeah, Great hi, Moritz. Hi, 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 Dietmar. <laughs> yeah, Great it's having been a while since, since we met. So actually, just anecdotally, um, Dietmar was organizing, for instance... Um, a workshop called The Scent of Information in Linz, this 2007 was, Yeah, it was a couple of years ago, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is where I first met Lev Manovich, so you see how everything is connected, oh, yeah. and it's all a big conspiracy, actually. Exactly. <laughs> so all a conspiracy, Dietmar. yeah. Yeah, that's it, it's, it always comes back to the same yeah. people. Yeah, thanks so for Dietmar, having me. Can you, can you tell us a bit about um, your background and what, you, yeah. what you're doing now? And so... Yeah, Dietmar, uh, so Dietmar Offenhuber, I'm uh, currently, I'm uh, on faculty at uh, Northeastern University in Boston and uh, I'm, I'm heading a new MFA program for information design and visualization, which is very exciting because we are, you know, uh, exploring many different things, trying to figure out how to position this in a really interdisciplinary uh, 
uh, framework. Uh, but I also have a kind of a second uh, second life as a as an urban planner, and uh, I've always been fascinated with you know reading the city in different way and understanding how you know space in a way. What is the role of space in society? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean you have quite a diverse background. So when did you start so, so like I, working creatively <laughs> with computers? That must have been yeah. So in, I was, I, yeah, in the nineties, I, I I started um, as an architecture student. Uh, without really having uh, the firm plan to ever become an architect. I, I just found it interesting <laughs> and I started, this was a, actually in architecture, I have to say the 90s were a very interesting time because everyone mm-hmm. was playing around with all kinds of different technology. Nobody actually designed buildings. Everyone designed <laughs> virtual kind of uh, sculptures and responsive things and thought that we all thought that this is really important Systems. and is yeah very um, very cutting edge and uh, so but then I, I got a little bit sidetracked and I uh, worked with uh, Ars Electronica Future Lab which is a um, it's 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 a little bit like a small Austrian media lab where we uh, worked on all kinds of different uh, projects and uh, installations, and uh, yeah, I spent there around ten years before uh, finally um, finishing my uh, architecture degree. And then I, uh, after a couple of other things, I I joined the media lab in uh, at at MIT in the social media group with uh, mm-hmm. Judith Donat, who is uh, yeah an amazing uh, academic, and and she was pretty much ahead of her time in terms of social media. And uh, but I always knew that I was more interested in. Uh, in, in, in urban systems. So uh, then I followed with a, a PhD uh, at, uh, at the Urban Planning uh, Institute at MIT with Sensible City Lab. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, that is the story so far. And then you went uh, to Northeastern. Are you now fully employed at Northeastern? Yeah, yeah, sort yeah. Of hop between. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm basically so the, the MFA program basically takes all my time. So I'm. I'm fully immersed in that at the moment. So yeah, this is yeah. the school of design, or, or yeah, it's it's so it's it's at the school of uh, of design, uh, but I have a dual appointment also in the public policy and urban oh, affairs nice. uh, program. So oh. this is this is something that Northeastern likes to do, having you know mixing mixing things up and having people associated with different departments. Nice. Yeah, that sounds really promising, and um, yeah, if you're looking for a good MFA, <laughs> this might be one. <laughs> yeah, because Absolutely. also these young study programs, there's still a chance. Uh, so it might be a bit more unorganized, but there's also still a chance to own it and sort of make it the, yeah, the way I mean, you want it, right? It is. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 it, it requires definitely a lot of uh, you know. Uh, people have. We're looking for students who have a have a vision, who who you know want to go into a certain direction, um, and it's it's quite interesting actually. I have uh, people who are marine biologists or uh, people who come from completely different fields, but then got interested in uh, visualization, and and sure. this is actually. I mean, I think visualization in a way is, I always think of visualization as a kind of a boundary discipline that is most powerful at, at the boundary between different disciplines, where it's always, always about, you know, translating or uh, facilitating, uh, uh, yeah, exchange. Yeah, this, this is so true. I'm always amazed 
especially going through so many interviews in data stories, how many different backgrounds uh, people have in this area. It's it's really, really amazing. I mean, you, you have a background in architecture, then you do stuff in design, then urban planning is very, very interesting. And I don't know, myself, I am a computer engineer, but devoted to visualization and other people have completely different kinds of background. That's that's probably the beauty of it. I mean, probably that's and the reason why we like to work with all the experts at the other. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, because usually you have a topic outside of visualization to work on. And yeah, yeah. And there are so that's many great. different kinds of people who do need visualization, right? Mm. And also, if you look back in history, I mean, a lot of the you know visualization, you know, the, the, the milestones came from from different disciplines, not not necessarily graphic design. Or, oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 A lot of statisticians have done mm, have done yeah, good yeah. things in visualization. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Cool. So, shall we talk about a few of your projects before we come to your recent books and also the main main topic of what we want to talk uh, about? So, one one project I found really really interesting is Wegzeit, which translates to wait time. Could you say that? Yeah. So, so it was this was this was actually my my architecture thesis in uh, I. I I worked on it in 1999 and until you know, 2000, and uh, so I was interested in uh, the notion of relative space. How you know Los Angeles as a city that is really, really uh, regular uh, for most of its mm-hmm. <laughs> um, part, uh, you know, becomes distorted in the subjective experience of time, of attention, and, and all those different things. So this was, this was actually before, uh, you know, there was really an audience for this, this type of visualization and uh, processing, I think, was also more or less at the same time when, this, when Plan and Casey started developing processing. So there were not really any tools that, so I worked with, mostly with technology that doesn't work anymore today. So the, yeah. the project is more or less lost. But was yeah, director or uh, it, it was co- something called Word Tools. Uh, it, it came out from oh, the, yeah. yeah, they had a web three, they had very big plans for web 3D. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a but, bit like Unity, like yes, the slot yeah. that Unity has today was captured by Virtuals at the time. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, but but a couple of years ago, it more or less disappeared from the stage. Ah, too so, bad. But you still mm-hmm. have some 160 by 120 <laughs> quick time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the historical <laughs> documents, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think I thought the thinking behind it is still very current that, you know, we have geographical space and then we have this sort of extra layers that distort this mm. so-called real world. Yeah, and are maybe actually more real than the actual physical mm. world. Like Yeah, I was uh, I was the really time and the, the digital overlays and, and so on. I think that's a very it's still a theme we're all still working on, I guess, right? Yeah. Maybe you, you want to describe how these visualizations look like. I don't. I mean, it's hard to describe things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, just to uh, give an impression of yeah, what yeah. the project I mean, is about. So, so the, the issue is with with time space. So, I mean, I, I was really influenced by um, all these uh, human geographers from the late sixties and and early seventies, uh, and uh, uh, you know, this this kind of difficulty at representing. You know, once you uh, replace 
absolute units of space with relative units, the whole geometry of space more or less falls apart because when you go from point A to point B, uh, the distance from point B to point A, so the opposite direction, might be a completely different one. So <laughs> the whole uh, consistency of space falls apart. So, so I had to think of you know different uh, geometrical um, uh, interpretations uh, to to deal with uh, with with these distinctions. Uh, for example, for this kind of uh, distances, uh, we I. Uh, I, I use this metaphor that you basically uh, climb a mountain. Uh, so when you're on the slower path and uh, it, it goes down one, if you're on the faster track. And so basically, as you choose your route through the city, the whole city more or less becomes a kind of a, a, a three-dimensional shape that basically always tells you whether you're on the faster or on the lower track. But this was just one of, of, of seven different ones. One, one funny thing was I tried to reconstruct the city based on telephone conversations. <laughs> so I, I called up different companies from the yellow pages and asked them to describe the way to their office. Then I used this as my virtual starting point and asked another company. And I, had, I think I had about, you know, 50 or you know, more than 50 of these conversations. And then wow. I basically tried to reconstruct the city just based from these descriptions. And it worked remarkably well. That was the interesting thing because oh. LA in, and this is something special about LA that people, you know, are used to driving. And so they have a very, uh, they're very good at giving directions. And mm -hmm. <laughs> it was amazing. And then you have stripes. I saw that one where you have stripes that represent time. Y yeah, that was the other thing. I mean, this was more or less uh, like uh, Google Street View, in, <laughs> but only in 2000, where I basically mounted <laughs> two cameras in the side windows of my car. And I systematically <laughs> traveled different parts of LA <laughs> and mapped the time distances at the same time, but also right. the yeah. Uh, yeah, traffic light phases and those kind of things. So this means that the stripes have the same length, but they also represent the same amount of time. Yes, right? but they also, in in the, they deformed based on, uh, so their, their shape changed. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. So that's mm -hmm. the kind of distortion-based thing, yeah. So you've done that in the in 2000? Yeah, this was, two, this was 2001 when I did the kind of distortion-based uh, uh, representations. Pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great project. So I, I hope there's some documentation still left. Yeah, um, maybe so when, when I really have time, I can go back that's, to that's it. That's an interesting <laughs> problem. I think we discussed that before, Moritz. I don't mm. remember with whom, but how do we create archives? I think with Manuel Lima, we discussed yeah. that, right? Mm. Exactly. How do you, you know, create archives, problem. right? Yeah. It's a huge problem. Yeah. Um, maybe we should all like screen capture much more <laughs> of, your, of our work. <laughs> Well, that at Ars Electronica, this was a, a big issue all the time yeah. because, you know, new media art uh, since, let's say, the mid-90s has taken many different forms and shapes. And, yeah, this archival aspect is a really crucial one. Yeah. I mean, the other option is always to do just more projects and even better ones. Yeah, I, th I think that's the better choice because, you know, who cares about the old stuff? So I don't have to care about the old stuff. I don't know. I tend stuff. to be a little <laughs> sentimental about these things. No, absolutely. I mean, and also, I love to show We Feel Fine, for instance, but this one's going away. You know, nobody yeah. uses Blogger anymore. Yeah, Java is hard to get to run. You know, it's, I, at the moment, you can see it go away, basically. And yeah, in half a year, it's, it's gone. And that's tough. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, but I think we need to solve that at another day. <laughs> <laughs> I won't solve that today. Maybe we should invite uh, Jonathan Harris sometime. <laughs> Maybe. So at least it would be audio documented. <laughs> Give him some tasks <laughs> to update and document it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you did a lot of great like work, actually more on visualization, like a lot of network visualizations. So the comment flow um, yeah, this project. Was, and I think you developed a whole network visualization framework for a couple of network related projects, right? Yeah, this was at the, during the, my time at the Media Lab. I um, mm -hmm. I was uh, also back at Ars Electronica. I was interested in, in in networks, and this was around you know 2004 when network uh, social networking started to become an issue, an interesting right. issue. And uh, at that time, uh, I worked with a um, basically self-described uh, diagram researcher Gerhard Diamosa. Uh, you should check out you should check out his work. He's he's yeah. doing amazing stuff. Yeah. And he's so, the master of networks. He's sure. yeah and and so he, yeah we, it was from him that I heard the term diagrammatics for the first time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he has this huge collection of of all kinds of diagrams and networks and uh, so he he always tried and I think he's still working on that coming up with all kinds of different taxonomies of of uh, of representations uh, that you know for like performative taxonomies or uh, you know all, all kinds of different ways of categorizing and understanding diagrams and so he had all these images and uh, this was around 2005 maybe so we we tried to uh, I, I developed a, a Java program for him uh, to organize those things in 3d uh, and uh, this this became a uh, you know kind of a network network tool uh, SEMA space uh, that a couple of people in the humanities mostly used but but I'm at this point I'm not developing it uh, actively anymore but but back then the main interest was just to get as much performance uh, out of, uh, of of the computers that were available at that mm -hmm. time as possible. Yeah, and I remember it worked really well. Like, it was very fluent. It had like auto layout, so the layout was constantly updating yeah. when you were doing selections. So technically, that was quite quite a feat. But uh, these things are tough to like. W yeah, once you, yeah, it's easy to get a good start, but then to maintain a network visualization library, really, it's tough. I mean, <laughs> then you really need to get into computer science and have a bigger team, probably. And yeah, but luckily, it's not necessary anymore because there are so many. <laughs> Great tools at the moment the that Giffy you know, Giffy. So, so yeah. you know, why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why bother? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but at the time it was very helpful mm -hmm. to have it and also useful. But you're right. I mean, at some point, then uh, it's time to move on. Yeah. And then, well, we briefly had an encounter together in the mapping the archive right, project. Exactly. Uh, that was fun, like looking at the RS Electronica archive, um, all the submissions to RS Electronica, working with the metadata there. And uh, and then you went to MIT pretty much right after, and I think the first project you were involved in was already a huge success, <laughs> the <laughs> Trash Track project. Right? Yeah, so yeah, Trash Track was was very interesting project. This was uh, so um, I, I didn't uh, I didn't come up with the idea. So the project already started before I came to Sensible City Lab, but uh, I then basically took the lead and over the. Uh, largest part of the deployment. Uh, so basically what we did is we attached uh, uh, 2,500 uh, <laughs> GPS trackers to garbage 
uh, in order to find out where the garbage goes. Yeah. And uh, which is brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant. It was it was it was a great project, and it was actually you know. Uh, you know, ma many, many uh, difficulties that you wouldn't expect. Uh, so, you know, how to, how to, how, I mean, how do you do that? How do you attach yeah. a GPS tracker to, um, you know, old banana, banana peel or something like that? <laughs> how you do know? you do that? I'm, I'm well, to the details. <laughs> okay, the details. Uh, so, uh, they are very messy details, we I have to say. <laughs> you need yeah. gloves, first of all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there, there was actually, we used the epoxy foam that is normally used for insulating hulls and and filling um, uh, surfboards. So this was a, a foam that really encapsulated the GPS tracker ah, and okay. and attached it uh, to the object so that you couldn't rip it off anymore. And okay. and all of that was necessary because we were concerned that the trackers would get separated and uh, from from the object. And but we also wanted to hide it so you don't don't doesn't you you don't That's see. Uh, but it, uh, you also had to make sure that, I mean, as you can imagine, the, the waste stream is not really a hospitable place for sensitive <laughs> electronic devices. So it had to be, uh, there had to be a physical protection and, and waterproofing. So, and, and all of that we, we managed to accomplish with this uh, foam. But uh, at the same time, it had to be fast, so because it was very work intense to prepare those items. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, there we developed a whole uh, process to to do that. <laughs> and there are no precedents for that, so there's no blogs on how to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to I mean, there have there have been a few a few people who uh, worked with different kinds of tracking mechanisms for single mm -hmm. objects. As a, uh, I think even Greenpeace did a. Um, okay. They tracked one monitor to Nigeria, um, okay. but not uh, so that they had to basically always follow the device because there was no, um, you know, no back channel. You, 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 you I mean. It's trivial to get the GPS location from the object, but how do you get the data back? That's the, the big question. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. So how did you do it? And how did you? How did you? So in our, in our case, uh, we, we used the cell phone network, which of course also doesn't exist on the on the ocean. And uh, unfortunately, it's very spotty in many places where mm -hmm. landfills and those kind of trash facilities are. But yeah, I mean, it was, was actually much better than we... Uh, expected in the beginning. So the devices were constantly like pinging a server with their current location, and the server would collect yeah. the data. Well, that was the that was the other problem that we we really wanted uh, to have those devices be um, to survive for six months. Uh, but you know, <laughs> if, if you if you think about you know the, those trackers, they look like very small cell phones, but you know. Uh, usually cell phones don't last that long so um, with 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 the engineers we had to figure out a way how uh, they would serve or save as much energy as possible and mm -hmm. basically they would they would only turn themselves on every six hours or so mm -hmm. uh, okay. send one yeah. ping and if they cannot yeah. reach a signal then uh, they, they basically give up yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. so how many of them arrived at their destination yeah we, we were getting good at it because in the end we we got 80 percent uh, success oh. rate beginning wow. was lower but yeah yeah. Cool. And how big was one of the sensors? Um, it was maybe like a matchbox, something like that. Okay. 
Mm. So it's it's not it's not like those James Bond type of uh, <laughs> yeah. trackers that are you know tiny that but you don't still see. Still small enough. Still to small be, enough to be uh, hidden. Yes. In, yeah, in many. Yeah. Is this something that would be? I mean, this is now how many years ago? Six or seven? Yeah, we we started in 2009, uh, but the project took quite a while because we okay. had to wait until you know all the. Uh, all the items have settled that we yeah. tracked, and then the data analysis part was was quite uh, work intense. And uh, so, yeah, we, we we did a couple of follow ups with you know informal waste systems and uh, you know international uh, movement of waste and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 still a, in a way a, a challenge to to look at infrastructures that way. Uh, and I, I guess there are many opportunities to, to yeah I love this general idea that we take something A that we take for granted as yeah mm. trash somehow works yeah but it's not my problem uh, but it's also very intransparent and you know nobody knows how it works yeah. probably it's not even the people running it yeah it's, <laughs> crazy. it's crazy and just you know throw out a couple of probes gather data and see what you can learn about that I think that's that's so valuable really yeah um, and I'm just thinking like if somebody wanted to do something like this today would, would you use the same technology or what, what would your tech approach be yeah. if you were to start it today well I mean I guess Uh, you would still pretty much have to rely on active location sensors, so on, on sensors that have a battery and have a radio that send back the data. Mm. But uh, in some countries and in some cities, they are working with passive sensors with RFID. And there's this, you know, this smart city idea that, you know, all your waste bins and everything is identified yeah. by smart tags and then all uh, the facilities and all the trash trucks have um, um, yeah have, have reading devices that would identify uh, all those different tags and then you mm. get this kind of you know total legibility of your infrastructure yeah yeah and our RFID is much smaller right yeah and much cheaper so much cheaper. you know if if you really want to build a whole citywide system like that, uh, GPS doesn't make sense. But uh, right, GPS right. makes sense if you don't don't have any leads where, where those things might go. And also if you want to look at those things in a kind of accountability or um, a forensic um, um, perspective, for example, if you want to find out whether, you know, someone is smuggling e-waste uh, into, you know, some mm -hmm. out of the country yeah, of and things course. like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. I mean, yeah, I, th I think it's a very fascinating project, and and I wish there was more in this direction. There's also the uh, in Barcelona the the citizen sensor uh, yeah. toolkit project, which I'm looking into Absolutely. because they also have a bee fork, so mm -hmm. it's something for beehives, and so it's <laughs> kind of cool. And and they have like a lot of tools around like DIY tracking. Mm -hmm. And um, so if somebody's interested there, they, they are a good starting point, I think, as well. And I'm super curious what comes out of this whole like scene of DIY tracking. I think that's, yeah. that's Oh, yeah, I think it's totally cool. Yeah. So that's a good time to talk about our sponsor, Click. Imagine an analytics tool so intuitive that anyone in your company could easily create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards to find meaningful insights. That's ClickSense. 
ClickSense was launched in July 2014 and pairs Click's market-proven data indexing engine with the ability to drag and drop visualizations into your dashboard. Above all, ClickSense is intuitive. ClickSense lets you rapidly create visualizations, explore data deeply, reveal connections instantly, and see opportunities from every angle. ClickSense's data storytelling functionality is noteworthy as well, making it easy to share analysis with colleagues and collaborate more effectively. And ClickSense isn't just limited to the desktop. Access your analytics on the go, on a tablet or a smartphone. You can find your insights in real time. And if you want to get started quickly with ClickSense, you can also use the Sensit extension for Google Chrome, which allows you to drag and drop data and visualize it directly in ClickSense. We will link it from the show notes. So try it out today. You can download ClickSense at qlik.de slash data stories. And don't forget the data stories. And now back to the show. And I mean, then we are right in the, the main topic of smart cities, right? So this exactly, as you say, is about infrastructure and and how how we can make this sort of these super complex um networks of activity more transparent mm -hmm. and and you've been like working a lot on this topic of smart cities especially at sensible city lab i guess <laughs> um, so i thought maybe you can describe a bit to us maybe to our listeners as well what the general idea of smart cities is and maybe start with the positive like the most utopian <laughs> vision <laughs> okay, that's yeah, the yeah. one we get presented mm -hmm. as well and then maybe yeah. we can also talk a bit about the the flip side and, yeah. and what are the challenges for yeah. the smart city theory at the moment and right. uh, maybe not everything is that cool <laughs> as it sounds <laughs> in a two minute demo video or so 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 yeah. how did it all start or what's the the current state of of smart cities can you give us a brief overview for the Sure. For somebody who has no idea, actually, sure. like me, for instance. No, I think uh, what what you just mentioned, the Barcelona Smart Citizen Project, is is a really good uh, example for civic technologies, where uh, this is this idea that you know uh, you you develop infrastructures from the bo bottom up to to make sense of your environment, and that uh, you you have a, a better understanding of. Uh, you know, things that matter uh, to you, uh, like, you know, safety or air quality and all those kinds of things. But this is uh, maybe one of the more recent uh, phenomena in that space. Uh, the idea of the smart city or let's say the, the intelligent city is, is, is a very old idea. Uh, it, I found it fascinating that even um, at, the, at the end, let's say, of the uh, 19th century, when... Uh, um, wireless communication and telephone came up, people started thinking about how those things uh, start or would change our cities. And, mm -hmm. and it actually did uh, from very early uh, moment on. If you think about, uh, you know, we are here in Manhattan, uh, we are here in, in Brooklyn, or if you think about New York in these uh, early skyscrapers, uh, you, you, you need a telephone, you know, I mean, how do you communicate in such a space? Uh, so, so the communication technology in a way uh, made it possible to have a, um, a physical shape uh, for buildings and then also for for cities uh, that that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And uh, also, then in the 30s, I think Frank Lloyd Wright in his Broadacre City, he, he said that well, you know, because we have cars, we have telephones, and we have automation, uh, cities will disappear. So that, you know, we, we don't need this concentration anymore, because we can mm -hmm. uh, easily 
beat the physical distance with the car, the kind of communication distance with the telephone, and uh, we can basically scale this up so like everyone has access to it. Um, and which is kind it of happening really today. Out, yeah. right? it, it is well it's it's interesting because there are always many different so the problem with this that uh, this would be called usually as a techno determinism where you say okay this is my technology and it will have this deterministic historical outcome and in some sense it happens uh, but it, it There's, there's also another there's also another side to it and uh, you have lots of paradoxical effects usually happening yeah. uh, so for example we know that cities didn't didn't really disappear, disappear. <laughs> I mean yeah. uh, we, we <laughs> more than half of yeah, the they population get bigger and bigger. exactly a, yeah it's a clear trend yeah and and well even in maybe the it just takes longer <laughs> maybe it takes longer I mean who knows you know I mean it's just that it takes longer yeah that's true that's true I mean who knows yeah yeah I think it's always a balance of forces and this might be a force repelling people or like making it possible mm -hmm. to go somewhere else but then there's attracting forces that might be stronger and And things like exactly. this, right? Yeah. yeah, and 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 just the you know you have this paradoxical effect that suddenly the place becomes really valuable, becomes a kind of prestigious uh, element. I mean, you could basically run a company from the middle of the you know uh, some ex-urban uh, business park, but you don't want to have your headquarters there necessarily yeah, unless yeah. you're in a particular. And and so you have all those kind of social political forces that basically mess uh, with the technology and then basically you, you get lots of interesting effects. I mean, for me in my own, um, in, you know, when I talked about how did I arrive uh, in, in, at, at, at this point when I started working with Future Lab and, you know, mm -hmm. speculating about future technologies, which was in the 90s, you know, the main thing. Uh, but After some time, I got more interested in how people actually use technology at the moment because those all those things became, in a way, mainstream. And then you get all these interesting social uh, phenomena that uh, all those kind of subcultures and, and, and whatsoever. And suddenly the future is not the, the main interesting thing anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. And, I mean, currently, who... Like, are there many smart cities already? <laughs> Or are many cities like becoming smarter mm -hmm. and smarter? And who does this? Is it like, do the administrations t like do interesting things with data? Or is it citizens? Is it corporations? Mm -hmm. What, what's your current well, feeling of, of the landscape there? I think all of them have a, have a stake uh, in, in that game, but they all, uh, you know, are basically have a different idea of, of what a smart city is. I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I was just last year, I was invited to a conference in, in Germany about smart cities and uh, just way uh, during the panel, I realized that they have a completely different understanding <laughs> and definition of what a smart city is than what I thought. And Can you give us an example? <laughs> I'm just well, what, what I'm uh, so basically I, you know, I always try to, to keep, concepts very narrow and not uh, basically expand them too much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, and the way how I remember Smart City, you know, uh, uh, Bill Mitchell at, at the Media Lab, he had this group Smart Cities and this was, um, yeah, uh, I think in, yeah, around 2000 he started to started this group and uh, 
A couple of years later, IBM more or less adopted this term for smarter planet and smarter cities. And uh, if you remember IBM as a kind of IT technology, in, since the 1970s and 60s, they've been providing IT infrastructure. And so their vision for a smart city was a very infrastructural one. It was all about attaching sensors to existing uh, urban infrastructure and then optimizing and making everything more efficient. And, and like a big machine, right? Yeah, right. There's the city as a machine, and then there's this um, fascinating uh, control center in, in Rio de Janeiro that I think uh, <laughs> many of you have seen. And, uh, you know, you have these huge screens where you have data feeds that come in from all different uh, parts of the city, all different infrastructures of the city. And, uh, yeah, so this is a little bit this kind of one could say cybernetic uh, idea of the smart city where you look at the city as a as this kind of feedback system where you have a, a, a kind of a machine intelligence that tries to optimize that. Um, and of course, this is something that raises a lot of criticisms as well. Uh, first of all, because some of these things have, have already uh, been tried in the 60s and 70s and some of them fails uh, in very spectacular ways. <laughs> so, for example, in uh, in New York, uh, there was a, a big project where in the 1970s, they tried to optimize the fire uh, response system uh, through a cybernetic um, um, th through yeah, a cybernetic algorithm. Uh, the Rand Corporation uh, worked on that and uh, there were as as a re as a result there were many areas that uh were underserved by those fire trucks and then there were a lot of fires uh, that basically had a really huge catastrophic catastrophic impact on the inner cities. They might have tried it out on something less uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> but the thing is that's 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 a story that has been told many times even here that, that there are many layers to it because uh the reason why this is has failed is because uh, the planners did not think about the the political and and social issues and then of course you know a certain politician has an influence why a specific fire station has to be in a specific place and not every every voice has the same weight so that's the interesting thing in, in about cities that you know you, you you cannot escape and those are the main things those uh, social and political issues but uh, it's I actually read this RAND report from the 70s on the fire stations and, and actually the, the, the algorithm is, 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 is interesting and uh, as far as I know it's still used today uh, to, uh, in, 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 the in fire, fire response. So there, there are many interesting aspects to it and, but I think there's quite a consensus that this cybernetic idea of the smart city that basically only focuses on the infrastructure uh, is is not not really uh, something that we want. Uh, yeah. So, mm. what is your definition of smart yeah. city? What, what do you? Yeah, think? I mean, smart city as a as a definition. I mean, smart city is in a way a branded term. It's like big data, smart yeah, city, and yeah, social yeah. software, mean, web 2.0. <laughs> 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 oh, I smell a, a future proposal there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm I'm just curious mm -hmm. to pick your brain. Yeah, what yeah. you think is a smart yeah. city? What, what you think or what would the be the positive vision? Like yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. On yeah, I mean, we, we've, we've already touched upon uh, this uh, more 
community integrated uh, aspect of, of civic technologies where uh, where you look at uh, urban governance not so much as an optimization problem but more as a communication problem between government and its its citizens so it becomes a kind of co-production uh, where citizens uh, play a role in in decisions and of course you know participation is also a, a term that has been misused many times but uh, in the end uh, there are many different uh, layers to that as well so in, in Boston, there is, for example, in City Hall, they have an office for new urban mechanics, how they call themselves. And mm -hmm. and they're all about uh, making city services accessible through technology. And uh, they are really interested in this idea of engaging uh, the citizen in, uh, so that they would see infrastructure or the city as a public good. And, and they are, you know contributing to that uh, but of course there's also the the opposite where uh, it's not about this you know uh, friendly idea of engagement but where it's really about conflict and uh, accountability and sometimes if the city is not responsible uh, or is not responsive uh, the citizens might just start building their own tools uh, to you know uh, in a more activist mode and and start to call attention to a, to an issue that they discover, and there are also many historical examples, uh, especially also in the U.S. with uh, you know issues of pollution and toxic uh, uh, waste uh, that uh, are unfortunately still hidden in and, and buried in many cities here. We also and had Mike Migurski on one of the shows who built the Oakland crime spotting yeah. thing, which also basically took an existing data feed, but then made it more visible. Yeah. Um, and that fed back into the political discussion. And I think exactly. these things are all quite interesting. Yeah. So what are the most interesting or most common data feeds coming from a city typically? Mm -hmm. and, and what can you do with them? So uh, in, in, in terms of... Uh, Open data. So, I mean, the basic idea of open data is that uh, you not only give access uh, to to data that is generated by the city, but you also give access in a way that you can uh, have it machine readable. That you basically have real time feeds that can automatically be processed in you know all kinds of apps that that you wanna uh, you know that 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 can be developed and. There are a couple of, I mean, a lot of people are working with this kind of 311 data sets, mm, which, mm -hmm. which are kind of mm -hmm. community incident reports when yeah. people complain about things, but which are not necessarily, um, they're not necessarily uh, uh, emergencies, mm -hmm, but it's, it's mm -hmm. basically, uh, you know, just suggestions for improvements. And uh, those are, I mean, they're definitely these reports are definitely interesting data sets because uh, they, they allow you really to read the city in a very, um, you know, uh, a granular way. And yeah, um, transit is a big issue. I mean, um, when urban transit systems finally got around to deliver real-time data streams, uh, everyone started developing uh, transit apps to you know plan your your route through the city mm. and uh, in a way you could also taxi say rides taxi rides taxi for new york you have a full data set of taxi rides yeah, yeah that's that's an amazing data set yeah, yeah. and 170 million uh, 
trips. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, even you know, when you go back in history in the nineties, I mean, even something like GPS, you know, I mean, GPS used to be military technology, but uh, if you think about how many current uh, applications depend on GPS as a as a kind of a uh, open real time data set that everyone has more or less access to, uh, I mean, it's not strictly speaking a data set, but uh, I think that the idea is the same. So is there anyone doing something interesting with uh, cameras? Because there are so many cameras yeah. spread around every yeah. city. Yeah, I mean, this, this is, a, this is a, 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 a definitely inter interesting thing. I mean, uh, you're, you're, you're definitely always uh, run in, into uh, the discussion of privacy when you, when you talk about uh, data collection in public space. And it's, uh, it's a very... Uh, tricky thing because legally everyone more or less can take a picture in public space and uh, because it's public mm -hmm. and uh, but then if you basically scrape all this information from public space and basically use it in all kinds of aggregated in all kinds of different ways uh, then you you definitely have a have you a, can connect the dots exactly basically. you yeah. can connect the dots and and you have a privacy problem And uh, you also have a governance issue. Uh, so I think Chicago has um, has this program where they installed uh, these street lights uh, that are smart street lights, and uh, so they you know count the pedestrians. They do have all kinds of environmental sensors. They have sound sensors, everything. Uh, but they look like a, you know very old fashioned lamp, like from the you know. <laughs> Paris 1920 or something like nice. that yeah. and romantic. so it's very romantic uh, sentimental uh, object but that basically records all that stuff so uh, <laughs> it's almost like an art project yeah right? exactly yeah. yeah so what what I'm interested in is this is this question of infrastructure legibility I mean can we I mean it should it should be possible to make sense uh, or to understand when something is recording something and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, you know, also having access to the data that those things collect. Uh, but then you also have a governance issue because, you know, what happens, who decides how long this data gets stored and so on. So yeah. all, all those kind of, for me at the moment, uh, those kind of governance issues, uh, especially when you have all this uh, uh, algorithmic uh decision making that is taking over many many different traditional uh, aspects uh, of yeah public life uh, where you know how how accountable are these algorithms i mean who uh, if if let's say a self-driving car uh, has an accident who is responsible and those kind of kind of questions yeah that uh, scales to any size yeah, yeah. Problem, of course. <laughs> yeah yeah I, i think the other huge problem is sort of one of um sort of um, if you naively follow just your sensor data, you will automatically focus on the areas where a lot is being measured. Yeah. So sort of this re this self um, it's a bias fulfilling prophecy sort selection. of. Yeah. yeah. Or we had, I think with Kate Crawford, this discussion that they had this sort of program in Boston where you could report bad streets yeah. with your smartphone. But then where people report bad streets is where people have smartphones yeah. to report them. <laughs> exactly. So you suddenly just optimize the part of the city where you get the most reports exactly. because people have the technology and time to, you know, and, and the awareness of that. So exactly. how, how do you deal with this, like yeah. all these blind spots that appear and all these, yeah, I mean, these mis misreadings? 
I, I think the question whether this kind of crowdsourced or uh, volunteered information is biased or not uh, doesn't make sense because it's biased <laughs> by definition. Yeah. <laughs> That's I mean, it's, yeah. it's, you know, there's self-selection going on. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And but maybe it's more a matter of awareness, right? Knowing that when yes. you are using this data, yes. there is a absolutely. And yeah, that, I mean, that's one of the big, the big challenges because all those kind of big data sets are, um, you know, they're, they're big, but they're also unstructured and they have all kinds of distortions. And, sure. and anyway, if you think about what, what data, what the term data actually means, I mean, the way how, how I would define it, I, I, I see, I mean, data points are observations, but observations that are made in a systematic way and that are encoded into symbols. So you have all these different steps, you know, the observation, the encoding, uh, and the categorization. You have to think about the symbolic language that is fitting. All those are human decisions that someone has to make at some point. So, so the question whether data is a raw material or whether it's something that is socially constructed also doesn't make sense because it's clear that it's heavily constructed. Mm. And uh, if you work with let's say uh, data sets from astronomy where you're hunting for planets uh, you know this is not really a problem because you know what can go wrong but uh, if, if you're dealing with urban data sets you're, you're constantly uh, confronted with this question of you know um, all those kind of social um, uh, and political issues that are uh, implicated in not only the data collection, but also in the way how data is stored and, you know, yeah. in, at, at every, any point. And, and I think, so I've, lately I've been thinking a lot about bias because um, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, what, about the definition or the nature or the quality of data, but uh, the bias is a is a is a concept that we all take for granted. You know, we, we just say data is biased, but you know what, what what do we actually mean when we talk about bias? And my my answer to that is that when we deal with crowdsourced information, uh, very often the term bias does not really capture everything that is going on. Because mm -hmm. bias actually means that there is a truth and the bias is a deviation of the truth. But in many different aspects of these data sets, uh, there is no truth. You know, there is no mm -hmm. no kind of canonical form. It is basically just you know, let's say you you report a broken street to the city. Uh, you can think about bias in terms of um, you know to what extent a certain demographic is represented in the reports. And then you can yeah. say, okay, there are people who don't have smartphones and you have less reports from them. But uh, then if you look at the content, you know, there's no, uh, you know, there, there is no true form how, how this, uh, um, how, you know, how such a report is, is supposed to, to take shape. And there are many different uh, me mechanisms for, for reporting. So I'm, I'm inclined to, uh, also think more about um, not just the bias, but also on the assumptions that go into uh, the design of the technology. And, and the design basically includes not only, let's say, the interface that is used for capturing, but also the, the language and the, the categories and mm -hmm. uh, the... Um, yeah, uh, basically the, the social protocols, uh, and, and basically it's, it's a very broad, it's, it's, it's a very broad thing. So yeah. I'm curious in your experience, to what extent do you think that people who make decisions based on this data coming from smart cities 
are aware of, of these problems? Because <laughs> if I understand correctly what yeah. you're saying, mm. you're kind of like saying the solution is not in creating better data or unbiased data, because this might actually be even impossible, but more making these assumptions explicit. Yeah, right? I mean... So people who make decisions on top of this data... Do you think they they are aware of these um, distortions or biases or whatever you want to call it? I, I mean, there's a, uh, a cynical answer to this could be that uh, in a from an economic standpoint, it doesn't really matter uh, because let's say if you use uh, predictive analytics systems uh, to make decisions and you are wrong uh, four times out of five, uh, it might not matter if the one time you're right, <laughs> really, you know. Uh, it's a and, very pragmatic. Uh, and and that's that's yeah. a real problem. That's why, you know, uh, all those kind of smart city companies are interested in correlation and not in causality because the causality doesn't really, you know, is not really mm. that actionable. Um, they, they're not really concerned that they're always right, uh, but they're concerned that, um in the cases when they are right, uh, you know, uh, you they have you know enough you know profit or uh, have, have eno enough advantage to um, you know make it worthwhile to do the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And and this uh, this this idea of the false positive, you know, is the false positive a good or a bad thing? You know, <laughs> either from an epistemological uh, standpoint, it's a bad thing, but maybe from an economic standpoint, maybe it's not. I don't know. <laughs> so can you give us an example yeah, of tricky. what... Oh, sorry, sorry. Moritz. Do, can you give us an example of what these companies are trying to predict? Mm, well, I mean, we... You know, I mean, I'm I'm not an expert in the kind of social media marketing. I mean, there are whole industries that are dedicated to that, so I'm not going to talk about uh, that. But let's say with this predictive uh, analytics in uh, policing, uh, that's that's actually a big deal because uh, you know police forces uh, are also uh, you know there are budget cuts and sure. uh, they cannot be everywhere, uh, so they are uh, using all kinds of spatial statistics. Uh, methods to figure out where most likely a, um, a crime would occur. And again, I mean, you know, it's not important for them that every single time they go to a specific place that there is actually a crime that they prevent, but mm. uh, they, they are just interested in to prevent, you know, in one of the, I don't know, one of 100 times when, you know, actually something happens that, that they are there. But this, of course, creates also the, the whole, you know, social exp externalities. And, and in New York, it's a, it's a huge, huge issue with the, um, with you know all those kind of police tactics of uh, stop uh, stop and frisk, so uh, I think those are the governance and and social issues that are uh, at stake. Yeah, here. and that that comes back to this question of what it means to optimize. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in, often you optimize for a certain countable metric, and we had that in the US quite a bit that certain police departments had to deliver so and so many yeah stops uh, in a given time frame. But I don't think that necessarily optimized uh, the quality of life for the citizens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, so they optimized a simple countable metric, but at the same time, de-optimized actual quality of life. Absolutely. And then, then it becomes problematic, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. No, I think the um, the whole idea of uh, 
of what is what what does it mean to optimize something this is also yeah. something that Especially has changed as a city, yeah. As, as city yeah. i mean uh, this cybernetic idea of finding the most efficient way to run a city uh is not really I don't want my city to be yeah, too exactly, efficient exactly yeah. I mean it doesn't <laughs> make sense I like this mess exactly you need yeah. otherwise I wouldn't live in New York exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly yeah and, and the cities are getting more chaotic I mean everything gets more informal uh, in, in a certain yeah. way uh, there is a um, I think people are also not so concerned about this idea of efficiency anymore because you know Or if you want to have a resilient city, uh, you, you actually want a city that is not efficient. Because yeah, an efficient diverse, city breaks diverse, down yeah. and then it's gone, you know. Even though I think that we don't even realize, I mean, normal citizens don't realize, and I don't realize how much how much is going on in a city every single day, right? There are lots of people who are whose job is running this city, right? Every single day. So yeah. that, that's another interesting yeah. aspect. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's a great opportunity for data analysis and visualization because I think I, I also did a few city visualization mm -hmm. projects and it's always so fascinating because it feels like you're looking at an organism, right? So yeah. it's like yeah. there is this higher order thing going on, you know, that we can suddenly observe. And I think that's just so... Yeah, it's, it's cool to work on that. No, absolutely. <laughs> and it's just also... What, what do you think... Looking 10 years ahead, what will be the biggest impact this whole city sensing and making sense of cities and sorting out cities and <laughs> all these things? <laughs> what's the biggest impact this will have? Like, how will it change how we live? What's, what's your a wild well, guess? Or what, what's, what would you put your money on today? I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you, if you look at the global scale of how, you know, cities change, We see that the biggest cities are no longer in the US and in Europe. Mm, yeah. um, I, I think uh, if we, you know, there are these kind of UN predictions of 2030 and from the 25 uh, biggest cities uh, in, in this prediction, uh, I think only two or three are in Europe and, and the US. And uh, all the other ones are in Southeast Asia and in, in many places that we used to call developing countries, but that description doesn't make sense anymore because they're actually very dynamic places. But if we, if we look at one, uh, one aspect that, that I think is very interesting and, and will uh, be very important in the future, it's, it's the question of informality. Uh, if you think of many uh, cities in the global south, you have a huge informal economy that basically runs, uh, you know, waste collection and uh, mm -hmm. street vendors and, and all kinds of things. And, you know, in the 1970s, we thought that those, you know, are just a kind of temporary phenomenon. They will go away. And mm -hmm. after everything is modernized, uh, you know, there will be no informality anymore. Uh, but now we know that this is not going to happen. It's, it's exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, I think that, I mean, it's not the biggest point, but I think technology also has a role in that. Um, because in a way, technology makes the formal more informal because you can, 
communicate mm -hmm. more easily. But on the other hand, it also makes the informal more formal because suddenly even a you know casual telephone conversation leaves all kinds of traces that in a way become uh, uh, you know a, f a formal document. Yeah, yeah. And 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 this dynamic between formality and informality. Maybe this is a little bit too philosophical, but but I think this this will have many implications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and higher opportunities for self-organization and, yeah. and, and flexibility. I mean, Uber. I mean, it's a horrible company, but the, the general trend is is interesting. That you know, suddenly everybody can be a taxi driver basically yeah. because they have a smartphone. And if you if you think that through, <laughs> yeah, exactly. or Airbnb and so on, yeah. suddenly you have these self-run places maybe at some point. Yeah, and and Uber is an interesting example because I mean, I I also uh, yeah. I mean, I share your <laughs> uh, your concerns about it, uh, but it, but it's interesting uh, the way how it makes the whole process legible again. So uh, yeah, also yeah, in terms of, of visualization, you you call right. a cab, you see where the cab is, you can follow it, yeah. uh, you you get That's in, all brilliant, Absolutely. yeah, and yeah. then you f you after you know even even after you. Um, arrived at your destination, you see exactly where you went and uh, have this connection with the driver, you can rate them. And so, you know, you have a, you have a completely mediated experience that uh, doesn't just start when you enter the, the, the car and ends when you leave it, but it, it basically is a bigger part of a bigger thing. And uh, that is, you know, scary in some ways because, you know, um, there was this anecdote, what, what was this? The, Uh, the rides of glory. Do you remember this story? No idea. <laughs> where where Uber started to publicize those cases where someone would take an Uber to a place that is not their own home on Saturday night and late, come late at night, late at night yeah. and come back home in the morning, implying, of course, there was something going on. And you know. Uh, I guess many people were not amused about that. So <laughs> yeah, and then you're suddenly in all this mess of privacy, and yeah. then it suddenly goes all wrong, right? So <laughs> it, it's yeah, that's that's so interesting. Yeah, but, but I think that's interesting that you say it's actually a chance to move out of Kafkaesque like authorities running the place, yeah, to much more self-organized. Um, I mean, people are super Ant quick. <laughs> exactly. I mean, people are super quick at developing all kinds of tactics against this. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are still trying to wrap our head around what is predictive analytics and what mm -hmm. are the implications. Mm -hmm. But people already know exactly how to game it and how to take advantage <laughs> of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Draw shapes in the city exactly. with uh, GPS tracks when running and so yeah. 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 So if you're looking for the hackable city, is that right? Exactly. Well, that's that's one vision, of course, yeah. Cool. It's fantastic. Uh -huh. Enrico, do you have more questions? I think we're, we're coming to an end soon. We, we are coming to an end an soon, it's, yes. We could, as yes. usual, go on for Forever. five more yeah. hours. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm just curious. So you've been mentioning the idea that most of the big cities are in South uh, Asia, And considering other regions of the world, I'm, I'm wondering if the whole idea of smart cities is happening in other regions, like for instance in Africa, mm -hmm. where I think Africa had a very interesting um, 
development in terms of technology, where, for instance, uh, I don't know, mobile technology mm. was adopted much, much quicker than, than computers, right? So Absolutely. They, um, so I'm wondering how these uh, impacts the whole uh, concept of smart uh, cities. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is exactly, and, and I also think that something like Bitcoin, you know, I mean, also yeah, has a kind of yeah, strange yeah, reputation, yeah, yeah. but I think it's actually a very... It's a, it's a technology that will have a big impact uh, yeah. on on and especially on the you know uh, developing uh, world uh, where Bitcoin suddenly becomes a way to send back money uh, mm-hmm. across the mm-hmm. globe very easily without fees and without yeah, this yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. so yeah I mean I, I I would also count those places and you know I've been working in Brazil with uh, with this kind of waste picker cooperatives mm-hmm. uh, who are actually pretty sophisticated in the way how they operate their uh, their businesses, and uh, so they they create this you know impeccable um, material of you know recyclable material that is very valuable, and they all have cell phones. Uh, of course, you know some of them are uh, cannot read or write, but they know how to. Uh, operate a smartphone yeah. and uh, it's it's not for them this is not a um, contradiction so uh, because it's it's also you know if you look at uh, this question of the digital divide uh, I mean there's certainly a digital divide in terms of um, in terms of education but if you look at the actual price of technology and what you can get out of it I would say that you know living and apartment and rents and those kind of things are much more expensive than a, a mobile phone and and mm-hmm. so the mobile phone mm-hmm. becomes a very important economic uh, facilitator for 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 many uh, of these uh, cities and and the kind of populations that that work in the informal sector. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do you know of any existing projects in these areas? Yeah, so I just colleagues came back from uh, Jakarta in uh, in Indonesia and it's apparently one of the places where most cell phones are uh, and smartphones, the highest smartphone density and, <laughs> you know, people, everyone has more or less their own business in, uh, you know, using the phone to, to do certain, uh, you know, things whether whether it's kind of you know organizing parking mm-hmm, spaces mm-hmm. or things like that mm-hmm. and uh yeah then there's the whole space of disaster response uh where uh digital tools for coordination sure. uh are you know uh colleagues are working on a uh, flooding, uh, a crowdsourced flood- flooding uh, response system mm-hmm. in Jakarta. Mm-hmm. Um, crowdsourcing is difficult, of course, because you need a crowd, uh, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that you don't always have. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's also something that is taken for granted. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Good. Good stuff. Good stuff. Very interesting. Yeah. All right. Good, good having you on. Super fascinating. Thanks for yeah. having me. And yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's Q-L-I-K dot D-E slash data stories.